Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast, where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative, cutting-edge information from leading experts from around the world. Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast. I'm Lawrence Katsaris, the Technical Support Manager at Metagenics, and I'm joined on this episode by clinical psychologist Dr. Adrian Lepresti. Dr. Lepresti became interested in the physiological mechanisms behind mood and psychiatric disorders after looking at research on the link between inflammation and depression. His interest in natural medicines then led him to investigate natural strategies for reducing this inflammation and has since driven him to complete a PhD on the use of turmeric for the treatment of depression. In this episode, Dr. Lepresti explains why inflammation is one of the major underlying drivers of depression and other mood disorders and how it specifically impacts our brain's physiology. He discusses his findings from his own research and clinical trials on the use of turmeric and saffron for the treatment of depression and shares his clinical tips and experiences on assessing, educating and treating patients with mood disorders using a holistic approach that addresses diet, nutrition, sleep, exercise and stress reduction techniques. Collectively, Dr. Lepresti finds that this holistic, patient-centred approach can provide significant improvements in patients' psychological health and well-being long-term. So thank you for joining me on the podcast today, Adrian. No problem. You are a clinical psychologist and have really started to implement a lot of functional holistic interventions into your clinical practice with your patients. Mm -hmm. How is it that you evolved from standard clinical psychology to more of a holistic Mm -hmm. and functional psychology? Um, well, certainly the the functional approach is not something that uh, I suppose is that we cover in standard psychology training. So generally, it's the uh, more kind of um, changing belief systems and working through psychological techniques from that standpoint, um, which is you know very effective for many people. But uh, um, I have always had an interest in in nutrition um, and really um, saw several clients who were. Um, suffering from depression, anxiety, but you know, their diets weren't flash, uh, their lifestyles weren't kind of conducive to good mental health. So, so that's where I just started kind of looking into alternative um, treatments to complement the psychological work that I was doing with them. So uh, from there I then did some tr- further training in nutrition and biochemistry and all the kind of background stuff which we generally don't cover in, in psychology. So. Um, and and from there it just kind of sparked my interest and uh, and just continued to be my passion as as, we've, as years have kind of progressed. So, and this is something like these dietary and lifestyle mm-hmm. interventions yep. are something that you're routinely uh, recommending to your patients now, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's sometimes difficult because when people come and see a psychologist, they're generally asking about uh, you know they're looking for kind of psychological counselling, and and you know we as psychologists generally give recommendations about diet to eat a healthy diet to exercise to get good sleep and and um, probably more concentrate we concentrate more on sleep than we do the diet and exercise side of things but uh, uh, so it can be difficult because they're looking for counseling uh, and then when you start talking about diet it can be quite foreign to them um, and understanding the link between diet and mood is is often difficult for them I think as psychologists uh, we've got to work out how we can incorporate that into our practice and, uh, and, uh, and really look at kind of, sort of the research out there which is uh, certainly developing over the last decade. So. And speaking of research, this is mm-hmm. something that yep. you've been investigating a lot yourself. Mm-hmm. So what are the mechanisms that you see how these 
lifestyle and dietary mm-hmm. interventions work by influencing mood yep. and psychiatric condition? Um, I originally became interested in the kind of the physiology when I looked at some of the recent research around inflammation, uh, and I was quite impressed by a study some years ago where they looked at the effects of uh, an antidepressant plus a pharmaceutical antidepressant, and and. Uh, when people were given both of them together, they worked better than just the antidepressant on its own. Um, but given my interest in natural medicine, um, I really wanted to look at natural ways to kind of reduce inflammation. And so that led me into looking at supplements that uh, may uh, fit that and also uh, looking at kind of research into the, the diet link with inflammation and so forth. And uh, and that's where I came across uh, turmeric or curcumin from turmeric as an anti-inflammatory and then the potential of that as an antidepressant. So from there, I uh, did some research uh, and I did my PhD looking at the effects of curcumin as a treatment for um, people with, anti- well, with depression. And uh, that's just kind of progressed from there. And with regards to, like, how is it that you see... Like, if you wouldn't mind us running mm-hmm. through those mechanisms mm-hmm. of how inflammation really interf- like how is it yep. that inflammation is causing depression yep. or influencing serotonin yeah. levels? Well, I mean, I suppose the the most popular theory is around that serotonin um, and, uh, and dopamine uh, neurotransmitters are kind of deficient uh, in people with depression, um, but certainly it's far more complex than that. It's not simply just a, a a matter of low serotonin levels triggering depression because if it was a matter of just increasing serotonin that the solutions would be really simple. Um, and so I was really looking at what it, uh, some, uh, some of the research in terms of what factors reduce serotonin and one of those is inflammation. So certainly inflammation kind of lowers levels of uh, tryptophan which is the precursor to, to serotonin. Uh, it also kind of leads to a breakdown of uh, tryptophan into a pathway known as kynurenin um, and then all the metabolites associated with that, which then can be quite neurotoxic. So, so inflammation kind of influences the neurotransmitters from that point of view. Um, inflammation also leads to increased kind of oxidative stress, which is damaging to the, all organs, including the brain. And there's been some research showing the link between oxidative stress and mental health problems. And then there's also the influence it has on uh, on our stress hormones, on our cortisol levels in particular. And over time. Uh, it certainly can have an influence from that point of view. So we're probably more afraid with the understanding of the fight or flight response with regards to uh, um, with regards to depression and anxiety. But uh, and we know that kind of stress that we encounter can trigger that stress response. But inflammation can also trigger that stress response too. So. Um, and then eventually inflammation also kind of is, can lead to neurodegeneration, can affect our mitochondria. So it just has this multifaceted um, effects throughout the whole body. And so if, theoretically, if you reduce inflammation, then potentially you kind of fix all those other pathways too. Yeah, great. And that, I guess and that's where you've come in with evolving the basis of treatment from just standard clinical mm-hmm. um, psychology to more holistic interventions yep. when we start looking at you know, diets that have been proven to be anti-inflammatory, mm-hmm. lifestyle mm-hmm. interventions such as exercise, which yep. have been proven to be anti-inflammatory, and really decreasing the primary driver from mm-hmm. what you're saying, which is causing yep. depression, which is the inflammation, mm-hmm. rather than potentially that serotonin that may just be a marker or a byproduct that gets low mm-hmm. because of the inflammation. Is that is that about right? 
Yeah, absolutely. If you, if I mean, yeah, you can target the serotonin and uh, and increase serotonin, but you're not really trying to, you're not really identifying the cause, and that's really what I suppose the work that we need to do is really try to work out the individual cause to each client. Um, and there's some basic principles that we need to to stick by, and that's eating a healthy diet, getting a good amount of exercise, uh, good sleep. Um, you know, eating foods high in kind of omega-3 fatty acids and things like that, which are really good components. Um, but I think what we need to do is really assess the individual client that we're seeing, determine what risk factors are there. Uh, you know, is there, you know, is it their diet that might be contributing to the inflammation and therefore the low serotonin? Is it uh, lack of exercise? Is it poor sleep? Um, is it nutritional deficiencies? Uh, digestive disturbances so there's a whole gamut of things that we need to really assess and then from there uh, treat accordingly and so what one treatment that we might offer one client may be very different so that we offer another one and that's the that's the key with regards to the I suppose the functional medicine approach that we uh, are really advocating so yeah that's very nicely put and with that and I'd like to come back to talk about some of those holistic interventions in a, in a little bit with regards to your findings mm-hmm. have you found routinely that working with anti-inflammatory herbal interventions works irrespective of the driver in a depressed individual? Look, I, I think if you're looking at um, you know, giving curcumin to everybody who suffers from depression or giving saffron, which is another one that I've looked at with regards to its uh, antidepressant effects, um, and that's your treatment, then it's, it's similar to a, a standard kind of medical treatment. Instead of giving a drug, you're giving a, a supplement, um, but you're not identifying the cause. So while they can be helpful, I think ultimately you've got to really identify the cause of what's going on and use supplements as a to supplement what you're already doing as a complement to what you're already doing. And I, I'm, I'm a bit ad- advocate in kind of really looking at helping people to make several small changes where, rather than um, one or two big changes. And if, if they can improve their sleep by you know, get better quality sleep or, or, or sleep more you know in one hour greater every night if they exercise three times a week if they drink more water uh, if they eat more fruit and veggies and so on and so forth each one of those are probably insignificant if you just do them on their own they might help mood by you know five percent but when you do 10 things that are insignificant and you put them all together they become extremely significant and that's really um, the approach that I take because it's really difficult for people with depression and anxiety who are suffering to make dramatic changes in their life. So if you can help them make small changes uh, and, uh, and then we can really get some positive benefits there. Yeah, using a, a multitude approach to it and getting Absolutely. a compound from each small intervention yep. and then allowing that to have a big yeah. therapeutic yeah. effect. And I guess you've talked about the studies... Uh, with curcumin and saffron, I probably wanted to, to go into mm-hmm. those a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Maybe using that as a little bit of a as a cornerstone, so you can reduce that inflammation centrally, mm-hmm. and then address maybe the driving factors, so that you can get acute symptomatic yeah. results, and then a long term a benefit. Mm-hmm. So, would you mind, just for those who may not be familiar with your work, mm-hmm. could you? Give us a bit more of an understanding of what your work has been on turmeric yep. and uh, saffron yep. and, and your findings. Well, I um, originally looked at uh, at curcumin for uh, for the treatment. So I had a, a study that I completed a couple of years ago with um, about 60. It, was a, it wasn't a large study, but I looked at um, 60 people with um, major depressive disorder and uh, it was a double-blind placebo-controlled study where uh, half were placed on a placebo and half were placed on curcumin. Um, I uh, searched around to really look for a high-quality curcumin so um, and I really kind of narrowed it down to one 
that uh, um, that had higher bioavailability. So the one that I used was BCM95. And, uh, and so when we put them on BCM95, 500 milligrams twice a day, um, or they were on place on a placebo. And what we found was that after four weeks, there really wasn't much difference between those on placebo versus those on curcumin. But after, from weeks four to eight, then it seemed like curcumin started kicking in from there. And people just continue, continued to get better on the, on the curcumin, but people on the placebo either stayed the same or got worse. So that was a really positive finding that we found uh, from that perspective. Um, and then um, I suppose what I wanted to do was really replicate the study with a larger sample size. So we've now done that with 160 people now. Uh, and we've actually done it over 12 weeks rather than the eight because it really, I wanted to see whether eight to 12 weeks was going to have a beneficial effect. And theoretically, from a neurogenesis point of view, uh, and I think that a longer study is probably the key around uh, your anti-inflammatory treatments. So we've just uh, completed that. Uh, so we had actually had four groups um, this time. So we had a placebo, a curcumin lower dose, which was a 250 milligrams twice a day, which is again the BCM that we used. Uh, the other group received 500 milligrams twice a day. And then another group actually had a combination of the uh, 250 milligrams of the curcumin plus uh, 15 milligrams of saffron twice a day. So uh, we're just finalising the results with that, but it seems as though um, the, you know, certainly the, the drug treatments or the, the natural treatments are, far, are superior than the placebo, particularly with regards to uh, depression and also it also seems to have an anti-anxiety effect too. So, and that was a, the uh, most interesting finding too from that point of view. Um, the other thing we looked at is uh, what we found in the first study was that curcumin worked better with people with atypical depression. And atypical uh, depression is, uh, is actually the most typical depression, um, which is about, represents about 40 to 50% of people with depression, uh, often quite difficult to treat, uh, usually associated with high levels of inflammation. So if you measure people with, uh, I mean, generally people with depression have high levels of inflammation, but particularly so uh, with people with atypical depression. And so what we found was that uh, this combination worked uh, even better with uh, people with uh, atypical depression. So, so that was, was interesting. And, and just for people who don't know, atypical depression is associated with uh, people who want to sleep more, um, who have low energy, um, who uh, do feel better when they engage in positive activities. Um, they may have experienced weight gain or increased appetites and they're quite uh, sensitive to interpersonal kind of stresses. So, yeah, thank you for clarifying. It is it's hard, I think, especially for those who aren't you know trained in psychology, mm-hmm. to be able to recognise some of these mood mm-hmm. disorders. So, to, just to clarify, the dosage that you found the best result mm-hmm. from with the BCM ninety five, and with the was with the combination with the saffron mm-hmm. or in isolation. Well, the problem you've got was when you're comparing two treatments that work effectively, uh, you need large numbers to then determine whether they are significantly different. So, um, certainly, uh, the it seems as though the the higher dose uh, works better. The 500 milligrams twice a day works. Best. But there's no, there was, I don't think there's going to be any statistically significant, but there's trends that kind of indicate that the higher dose looks better. Um, and then the combination um, is probably better than the lower dose. It would be really interesting to have seen, to um, had another group where they just had saffron on their own, but uh, 
then it just makes the study just way too large. So Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So with that 500 milligrams, that's 500 milligrams of the extract of BCM95, yep. which is, I believe is a 25 to 1. So that would be 25 gram equivalent of turmeric, dry herb equivalent. Yeah, yeah. I think that's certainly something we've got to get a hand around with regards to the Australian conversion. So, yeah. yeah it gets yeah. difficult. <laughs> <especially>. <laughs> so it's, I, I, I don't know. So it's 25 milligrams. It's, it's 25. 20, 25 grams okay. of the, of the turmeric mm-hmm. dose there of a BCM95 dry yeah. herb equivalent. And mm-hmm. I know it can get tricky, especially as a, as a clinician and you're mm-hmm. reading a paper and then trying to equate that to, yeah. to how much you're trying to prescribe in, mm-hmm. in clinic. And it stands to reason that saffron would be that we're getting this joint effect and I guess a synergistic benefit from yep. saffron alongside turmeric there mm. because of the antioxidant uh, mm. benefits through both of them, their ability to downregulate inflammation as you were discussing mm-hmm. before about how this inflammation and oxidative stress really creates this, you know, this recipe for a storm in, in the central nervous mm. system and encourages, you know, neurodegeneration. Yep. And I found it interesting what you were saying just then about how something a novel finding coming out of the study with the BCM95 was not only did it decrease depression but also anxiety which mm-hmm. I think stands to reason where we've seen how that inflammation not only will influence depression but that inflammation can cause structural changes mm-hmm. in the brain which may influence you know hippocampal shrinking yeah. which can influence anxiety mm-hmm. as well yeah. so there's certainly um, uh, some lots of uh, interesting animal studies uh, looking at the effects of curcumin on on different kind of neuropsychological conditions, and uh, and you know, and that needs we need to kind of translate translate that into kind of human studies. But there's been studies around uh, curcumin working with the PTSD, post traumatic stress disorder model of animal model, and that seemed to be effective there. Uh, there was also an interesting one where they uh, they've got an surprisingly an autism um, model animal model too where they inject them with a, a substance that causes autistic like behaviors and taking the curcumin uh, seemed to prevent uh, some of the autistic behaviors or uh, uh, that occurred uh, in the animals so there's several animal studies showing that curcumin has some anti-anxiety effects um, and I think that's where the next uh, research also needs to look at whether curcumin in human-based studies uh, can also help people with uh, your, your standard kind of stress and anxiety symptoms, which I suspect it will. So. Yeah, definitely it starts to come back to that um, those functional drivers you were talking about. Essentially, irrespective of however the mind's um, becoming imbalanced, whether it's a depressive disorder or an anxious-based disorder or you know PTSD or mm-hmm. OCD, that essentially it's that inflammation that's causing the problem isn't it yeah well i mean i suppose or, certainly yeah inflammation it could be a driver drivers, yeah, yeah so certainly i think that's the thing it's about um you know it's a whole combination you know they all affect each other so it's it's uh, and ultimately uh, we know that uh, good exercise is anti-inflammatory it's an antioxidant it's um it it creates kind of neurogenesis and all that sort of thing so just uh, and so does good sleep, so does a good diet. It just affects all those different pathways. So it just makes logical sense to to, impl- to use strategies that target all those different mechanisms. Yeah, to dealing with the driver, essentially. Absolutely. Absolutely. So with that, do you find that it's of value to be testing for inflammatory markers in mm-hmm. these patients? Like, are you using tests such as C-reactive protein to identify that there is inflammation present and then you're seeing that come down with treatment? Yeah. Um, I think it's. I think it's doing some blood standard blood tests. Uh, uh, 
are probably important with regards to many of the clients who are presented mental, with mental health problems, and that may include C-reactive protein as one of those. So, you know, assessing their thyroid function, assessing uh, kind of levels of kind of your B vitamins, your folic acid, and, and your red bus, I mean your, your B12 and things like that, which are okay tests, but and they give us an indication of things going on there. And I think the problem we've got is that when people present to their GP with depression or anxiety, it's kind of put into the, uh, the mental health disorder, not a physical disorder. Um, and as a result of that, they don't get tested for these things. And you know, even things like certainly iron and, and uh, uh, homocysteine and all those different uh, tests are probably useful to do. Um, so saying that, I don't necessarily think it's essential to to have high C-reactive protein um, and then go, well, if you don't have high C-reactive protein, we'll assume you're not inflamed. I think it really it's kind of just going, because that's the problem. If you go, well, my, my CRP is fine, so therefore there's not inflammation. Inflammation mustn't be causing the disease, well, the, the symptoms for me. But I don't think that's necessarily correct. I think we've got to, um, to use blood tests as a kind of extra components of our assessments but not to take away um, what we're doing in our, in our assessment. So if they're leading an a, uh, inflammatory life then we need to target that no matter what the CRP says. Great, so yeah definitely going based off symptomatology and case presentation mm-hmm. which Absolutely. is, I'm glad, I'm glad to hear you say that because that's what I see in clinic as well is that sometimes you'll test patients who are depressed and you're not necessarily seeing a reflection of high mm-hmm. CRP or raised HSCRP even. Yep. But I guess the symptom presentation of someone who's depressed or anxious mm-hmm. is enough to base off the fact that there is some kind of inflammation and oxidative stress mm-hmm. occurring in the central nervous yeah, system. Absolutely. So with regards to dealing with those drivers, is there any other key nutrients um, or herbal interventions that you commonly like to prescribe as, as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I mean, generally I like to put it, most people on a, a, um, a fish oil, a high EPA fish oil um, is generally what I'll recommend for most clients. Uh, so that's kind of one of the core treatments that I'll, I'll look at doing. And, um, and the key there is about, the problem too is really ensuring that they take a high quality uh, fish oil, um, which, is, which can be difficult for them. But uh, So that's a high EPA one I'll, I'll certainly do. Um, most of the time, I'll recommend a, a B complex too. Um, so, as a, as a basic call there, and um, from that point of view, I know there's some contention about whether you should use a B complex depending on the kind of subtype of uh, biochemistry that they have. But uh, um, the reality is, for most people, you know, a lot of them don't get testing done. So, I think it's probably a good good bet from that point of view. Um, so, uh, other things that. Uh, uh, I've used in my practice uh, things like, uh, you know, obviously there's your St. John's wort uh, that uh, many people will use uh, for depressive symptoms. Um, I like to use, uh, I like the research behind theanine, um, but unfortunately it's not widely available here in Australia, so uh, that can be a problem. Um, magnesium particularly, uh, you know, I think for everybody, but particularly people with stress and, uh, and sleep problems I think is particularly helpful from that point of view um, and uh, you know there's your other kind of um, herbs you know set of, you know, used a bit of kava with people but um, again you've got to be really careful about the selection of that um, and there's various other kind of Chinese herbs and things that, uh, that people can use too so. With, with your fish oil supplementation mm-hmm. and your bees like I'm assuming these are probably quite foundational mm-hmm. something that would be appropriate for everyone mm-hmm. and I get with the herbs 
sometimes one may be more appropriate for someone than the other. So with regards to the dosage that you'll use for the fish oil and, and the magnesium and even the bees, Adrian, is there any particular dosage that you like to hit there? Um, with the fish oil, I uh, generally aim for about uh, 1,500 milligrams uh, a day of the EPA and DHA combined, so um, more of it coming from the, uh, from the EPA. So I try to uh, aim for double kind of the EPA than the uh, DHA, so 1,000 milligrams or roundabouts of the EPA and, and 500 of the uh, DHA, so somewhere, somewhere around there. Um, and then uh, the magnesium, um, I generally kind of like the uh, the magnesium glycinate, bisglycinate um, forms. I think they uh, seem to have better, particularly anti-anxiety effects from that point of view. So, um, you know, lower dose is probably 200 milligrams a day, but certainly probably more so the 400. Um, and if they're having sleep problems, you know, take it before bed. Otherwise, uh, if it's just about kind of just increasing kind of levels of magnesium, I'll try to get them to split that up over the day. So, and for the bees, just a, a bit of a broad spectrum bees, sort of fifty milligrams. Yeah, so five. generally about that 50, 50 milligrams mark for just a complex a bee complex. Uh, you know, so that's probably the way to go that I generally recommend. And you know, sometimes I'll use the activated if it's available. Yeah, it's nice and convenient for mm. the patient certainly. Mm. And on those doses, like if you're looking at a combination of you know, bees, fish oil, say turmeric, saffron, and you know, the rest of your mm-hmm. interventions. What sort of time to effect do you see that patients start to experience a benefit? Oh, look, I mean, it depends on, on where they're at. If, if somebody's then uh, leading a really unhealthy lifestyle and they make some dramatic changes, the changes can occur really quickly, uh, you know, within the next session, within weeks. So uh, for others where they're leading a pretty good lifestyle I think the, the changes uh, take are, are a lot slower I think it's it, uh, and we just need to kind of be aware of that and it's just really fine-tuning things but I'd say um, people should feel better within weeks um, the problem is a 10% drop in it you know, if you used a questionnaire for example which you know we uh, psychologists and researchers often use um, a 10% drop in depressive symptoms is not something people's going to jump up in the air and uh, raving and waving their hand about and saying this is a miracle. Um, so after week one, a 10% reduction is probably insignificant to them. So whether they notice that change, they might say they feel a little bit better. But to uh, but it generally takes you know at least uh, you know four weeks or so for them to to feel better. So yeah, okay, great. And do you, do you prioritise your interventions? Like do you sort of tier the implementation of those or do you like do you start maybe perhaps with some of your cognitive mm-hmm. therapies first and then slowly put them on lifestyle yeah. and supplementation mm-hmm. or do you start them all off at once look i mean my my ideal would be to have everybody come in and uh, and put them on a really clean diet first up uh, that would be my ideal um, you know for some people who had chronic health conditions i mean i had this kind of uh, you know, dream I suppose that you could just kind of send them over to a retreat, eat really clean, organic, gluten-free, dairy-free kind of, uh, and uh, and you'd probably see dramatic changes uh, there. But so I, I'd love to work with the diet, but I really work with with um, where the client is at. So if they're coming in, and I'll talk about. Um, you know some of their symptoms. I'll talk about my formulation in terms of what I think might be contributing to their symptoms, and I'll work with them to determine which way which way to start. For some people, they don't want to touch diet, and if that's the case, um, I talk about the the pros and cons of that. But I then work on 
you know, the psychology with them. Others um, will come in and they, they are absolutely excited by this diet brain connection and they really want to work on that. So I think that's a key. I think we've, what we've got to do is go assess our client, determine what the risk factors are and then go um, where are they at, uh, what, are they willing, what areas are they wanting to change and then work from there. Yeah, great. I think that prioritisation for the patient and really connecting and engaging with that patient to find out who they are and where they are is, mm-hmm. is critically important and could sometimes get forgotten amongst the, the complexity of trying to treat a complex sort of condition yeah. in inverted commas. Yeah, I think, that, I think that's the danger is I think sometimes you, you, know, you can come in and you, you know the benefit of some of the nutritional and, nat- and supplements that, we can, uh, that, can, yeah, that, that can be really helpful to them. But if they're not ready for that, you know, and you go away sending them away with $500 worth of supplements, uh, they, they're not going to come back. Um, and, uh, and, and their experience with that type of treatment is going to be quite negative. So um, again, there's the ideal approach, but then you go, okay, based upon this individual that I'm seeing, where do I start? And it might be that um, you just put them on a you know, fish oil and a B-complex first, um, you get them to start to drink more water. Um, you get them to go for a walk and that's it for now and then you gradually add to that as you go along. Fantastic I think that um, like I don't know how you work in your clinic with this Mm -hmm. but in our clinic we have a a questionnaire that we use for motivational Mm -hmm. interviewing and really find out about a patient's likelihood or an interest of implementing Mm -hmm. you know dietary changes lifestyle changes you know whether they're able to change certain factors like work sleep habits you know supplementation and then from there instead of as you're saying setting them up to fail where you might give them a whole bunch of supplements that they're not going to take or Mm -hmm. give them dietary recommendations that they're just not ready to implement yet Mm -hmm. which I guess leads me into my curiosity about how you practice given you're practicing as such a a broad spectrum of mind and body Mm -hmm. where do you see the weighting of physical interventions that are going to influence physiology Mm -hmm. as opposed to your psychological and cognitive interventions um i mean in terms of weighting them i I think it just depends on on the individual person so uh, i just i can't you just really can't separate them i don't think i think that's uh you know if you're going to aim for ideal treatments uh it's really looking at a combination of all those different things so um you know i i might go in my head, I'm, when I'm seeing a particular client, I might be going, okay, this is, you know, there's a particular area that I want to work on with them first. Um, but still, you know, um, it's, it's hard to weight them. They just, they, so, so it's entwined. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so. And that physiology is really dictating the neurobiology and then the, the yep. neurobiology is going to influence perhaps their likelihood to exercise or impl- yeah. impl- implement yeah. dietary changes. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and uh you know, this is where also, you know, you can go down the, the dietary and nutritional point of view and not really understand the psychology too, which then, um, you know, and they're engaging kind of behaviours that are stressful, that their coping skills are bad, they're, they're um, you know, I, I mentioned earlier in, uh, you know, with some of the research around some of the ruminations and if, you, if people become preoccupied with the stress, that is inflammatory. So, uh, so people who ruminate more, who think about their problems over and over again, uh, that's going to cause inflammation. So if you then do dietary intervention and you give them supplements and then they go away and they still ruminate over and over again, it's going to have a, a you know, it's going to kind of counteract the the benefits of the uh, the interventions there. So, 
So that's where ultimately you go, okay, well, maybe what we can do is if I can teach them strategies to ruminate less, and that means um, maybe the way I'll do that is to exercise. If you're exercising, you're not, you're not obsessing about your problems. Um, if, you're, if you're engaging in a pleasurable activity, so you don't have to be a psychologist to do this stuff. You know, it's, some of it's just, um, yeah, you, 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 your, your cognitive behaviour therapy and things are like that. You certainly need more training in, but um, not hard to, to, to discuss with the clients uh, some engaging activities that they can engage in during the week. And when they engage in an activity, they're not thinking about their problems, so their focus is somewhere else, and that's soothing and that reduces cortisol and that reduces inflammation so i think uh, as psychologists we have the where the, there's a danger of not considering the nutritional and biochemical points enough but then i think also we've got to be careful uh, when we go into the biochemistry and the functional medicine we need to really be aware of the psychology too and take that into account definitely so it's almost a matter of kind of putting a halt in that catch-22 mm. that is continually feeding into itself mm-hmm. and trying to find out ways that you can decrease that inflammation and whatever other drivers are going on that's causing this mood disorder. And we've talked Mm. about some of those in terms of nutritional and herbal interventions and and lifestyle. Mm. But for the clinical practitioners out there who don't have much training in terms of psychological Mm. aspects, what I'm hearing from you just say there is just a simple matter of asking that patient, you know, what do you do during a weekly basis that you engage in, that you have fun in, that yep. help you relax? Those simple questions and then helping them find time and activities that can help them do that will have a, a large impact as well. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that's where, you know, and that doesn't take much much work at all to do, you know, just really talking talking about, uh, you know, some of the, and helping clients understand the impact of, pleasurable activities and soothing activities on the physiology and on our kind of brain structure and things like that and yeah just kind of problem solving you know what do you do to chill out you know how do you and and what things can you do and uh, I think that's a really good question to ask particularly mums I think uh, mums are uh, you know often spend so much time with their kids and they prioritize things with their kids but they don't spend enough time on themselves and uh, and many people will then feel guilty well that many mums will feel guilty they say when i do things for myself i feel guilty and all i can really say is well you're just gonna have to stay with the guilt for a while eventually get you'll get used to it so and I, a common excuse i hear from clients is they're just time poor mm-hmm. and that you know the mother is a great example of where am i going to fit it in yep is there a ballpark idea that you, a time frame that you look at is it something like half an hour every second day or an activity one night a week or to as a time frame of how much they kind of need to be doing to investing in themselves and their happiness oh, look, i think um i think again you know all of those are, are good options to so just um and look and i'm probably more uh i'm not one to ask people to go spend 30 minutes or an hour a day engaging in meditation or that would be great but you know I don't do that uh, so it's really difficult difficult for me to, to recommend that um, but what I'm I think the key is about frequency I think small amounts of time um, several times a day so if they can engage if they can just sit outside and um, I don't know whether I'm supposed to say have a coffee, but I'll sit outside and have a coffee. Um, I think it's health benefits from coffee. Um, so, uh, you know, and they'll just sit outside and have a coffee where you sit. You know, we're about to you have your coffee. Can you sit outside? You know, um, you know, when you're waiting for the kids in the car and they're, they're, uh, you're waiting for them to come out of school, you know, what's something that you can do there that's soothing? So it's, it's not about 
allocating time. It's just kind of going, well, wh where's time that you can kind of, just a few minutes a day, several times a day. And I think, you know, two minutes, 10 times a day is better than 20 minutes straight. Definitely. It's almost reclaiming that time back. Absolutely. You know, we're running around busy, but there's times we're stuck in elevators mm -hmm. or traffic lights and yep. waiting for people to just be mindful and just engage in ourselves and kind of reclaim that oh absolutely that you know be back, you know when you're driving in a car and you, if you love music then you know play music that's going to make you feel good that's going to increase a lot of you know positive uh you know i don't know the research around that but i suspect that has a has an impact i know that certainly music therapy has some physiological effects but um you know, listening to a song would probably reduce cortisol and reduce inflammation and 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 singing it out loud just as long as People don't think you're too weird, but uh, <laughs> um, but fine. Now, these days, everybody thinks you're talking on the phone, so you can sing out loud in the car now. So. <laughs> true, very true. <laughs> so something that I'm always interested to find out about is, from individual practitioners, what is it that you do yourself, Adrian? Like, where mm -hmm. is it that you put the focus for yourself to making sure that you keep balanced in mm -hmm. the busy life? Yeah, I mean, look, I think... Um, I think the beauty for um, one of the things for me is that uh, it's really about trying to identify what it is that engages you. Uh, fortunately for me, which is a bit sad actually, but uh, uh, the thing that engages me is learning. You know, and I, I love learning. So when I go home and I read stuff about psychology and nutrition, um, I'm not really working. Um, so uh, I'll do things like that. I mean, I certainly you know exercise regularly. I, I try to eat. A, 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 you know, generally clean. Um, I'll, you know, I will. I'll use. I use a lot of kind of breathing um, and mindfulness stuff and breathing practice that I do. And I generally, I'll kind of listen to my body. If I, my sleep's not so great, I'll kind of up that a little bit. Um, and uh, you know, being around positive people, you know, uh, you know, my family and and spending time with them is is extremely important. And uh, I think that's the thing is you know the support systems you know who, who do you spend time with um and are they um energy draining and if they are then how do you minimize your exposure to them you may not be able to kind of take them out of your life but uh but and then who do you engage in that's kind of uplifting um so and fortunately for me i have a good family and and support systems around that that i enjoy spending time with so Lovely, mm. spending time with people that you love and that care about absolutely, you. Absolutely, yeah. And doing things you love is, sounds yep. like a great way to absolutely, spend Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's fascinating, Adrian. Thank you so much for your time. It's lovely to hear how you are able to apply the holistic implementation of helping with mood disorders from everything from supporting the mind right through to supporting the body. And mm. I think thank to people such as yourself that are doing the research to prove just how valuable some of these ingredients are and just how important some of these interventions are really helps progress this industry and, and the space of knowledge. So again, from me and I think from everyone, thank you very much for, for what you're doing mm -hmm. and thanks again for your time. No problem, thanks for that.